0: Hello and welcome to the Urbanist Monocles programme
1: all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... You can play basketball one day, Babington the next day. You can go for a 200 metre walk around an outside area. You can go and sit by an area and pluck flowers and grow herbs. All of that is about mental health, giving opportunity, fresh air and making someone feel that actually the workplace is a place that we actually want to be. Staying active in the city can be tricky,
0: but urban environments can also be fantastic places to stay fit and healthy. Today we look at a few of the ways that cities can encourage exercise and the key players making that a reality. From a real estate developer prioritising physical activity, to a company promoting urban design that gets people moving, and the new trend of micro-gyms popping up in dense urban areas. That's ahead in the next 30 minutes here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. The numbers may have changed since the rise of remote working, but many of us still spend 40 hours or more a week in an office and commuting. It stands to reason that if we hope to stay active in our cities, we need workplaces that support us. Well, I'm joined now by Alexander Morris, Development Director at the real estate investment firm Bentle Green Oak. The firm is currently working on 105 Victoria Street, a project that includes a gym, a 200-metre-long walk and talk track, an auditorium for indoor sports games, an extensive cycle storage and a cycle ramp to provide door-to-door cycling access into the building. Alexander, thank you for joining me. Perhaps, first of all, you could tell us about Bental Green Oak. Many of our listeners may not have heard of it, but it's a fairly sizable company, I guess, with a a huge amount of assets under its belt.
1: It is, and it's actually 100 years old in time, so we haven't got time to go through it all. (laughs) We have 80 billion asset under management globally. And it's run out of our Miami office, but we have offices in America, we have it in Europe and we have it in in Asia. And we do offices, residential, logistics, all types of real estate.
2: And when you say do, you're the people who put the money up, commission the architect, see the project through?
1: So no, we are a real estate investor. So we go out and get investors to give us funds in certain assets. Then we go and get the architects, the engineers, the planning, the construction, delivery, leasing, and then either sell it for them or retain it.
2: Now, we want to talk to you about a building you're doing in London. But first of all, many of the people I speak to, like yourself, they especially in America, they're still panicked a little bit about what's going on. But here you are investing big in a mixed-use development, but A lot of office space in it so just tell us where you're feeling as a company is where the market sits at the moment
1: i think in the company that's global there are definitely challenges in offices in certain parts of the world but i would say in london we're at a place where we're delivering projects that are of the right product the right requirements the right sustainability standards and actually supply is going down because people have put on the brakes demand is going up And actually people want better space. People are thinking about having that opportunity to come into their building and actually really believe in that building from sustainability, wellness, exercise, production, all those great things. And we believe that right product in the right place will get the returns.
2: Now, I should paint a little picture because you arrived on your bicycle, so you are in here in a cycle jersey. (laughs) You've come in the rain. I wonder whether some of your personal bent has fed into this project because what we wanted to talk to you about is a fascinating project for well-being, for health, that the things that have been stitched into it I don't know, to make it appealing for clients or to make it just a nice building to be used? Where does that come in the into the planning stage? So let's let,
1: if I start with, I cycle five days a week to work and when the weather's a little bit not so hot, I run into work. I swim three times a week. So exercise is really, really important, but I do it on my way to and from work. And therefore that is an important part. So if you look at the history of the projects I've done over the years, it's driven about pushing sustainable travel, pushing opportunity and making sure that people can actually have a, proper piece of wellness within the space it has been slightly accelerated by pandemic but we can probably come on to that a little bit later and i believe that if you drive the opportunity for those coming into the building that think about sustainable travel think about their health think about working at the same time we will actually get better returns for our investors because you're going to find occupiers that want it so 105 victoria street has some wonderful things you could play basketball one day the next day you can go for a 200 meter walk around an outside area you can go and sit by an area and pluck flowers and grow herbs all of that is about mental health giving opportunity fresh air and making someone feel that actually the workplace is a place that we actually want to be we actually want to work there rather than going back to the pandemic, where a lot of people are moving into the worlds of working from home rather than coming to the office.
2: So just tell us what's gone into the mix of mixed juice here. It's a tower, it's a town square, it's various things. What's in the mix?
1: So one of the important parts is we have a village square. The original asset was based around a village square. So you entice people to come in and we're using local news retail. So it's actually the retail that's required for those of the occupiers, but also supporting the local community. So it's actually building in this link between the office, the occupier and the community, which is incredibly important. In terms of the other elements, it's all linked to sports. So there's a gym, there's a bike store, there's bike parking, there's basketball, there's all the sports you can think of, as well as what I was describing in the urban farm. So mixed use, it's got two levels of retail, the rest of it is office.
2: Now, one of the things is you explained, you could. there's a cycle ramp, I believe you can cycle into the building, there's safe storage for users of the building. How much of, of that is aimed at the office residents and office users and, and how much is public facing as well then?
1: I think the first thing about the bike ramp, it is unbelievable and you can't describe it, you need to see it. But the purpose is, that most people think the most important people to walk into a building are individuals that have come off a train. I think it's as important that the people arriving on the bike, if they're running to work, or if they're using a scooter, is as important. So this ramp is a three-storey high massive volume of beautiful design that gets you down to a thousand bike spaces, of which 600 are generally allocated to those that are in the building. There are 400 other spaces of which they're split in medium term and short term. So if you're a guest and you're coming to a meeting and you want to cycle there you cycle down the ramp you can park your bike safely you could go and use a shower or a locker or if you're a person that's coming to the gym from the outside or you want to go and use the village square to pick up your groceries you can cycle down there park your bike so it actually is thinking about bike sustainable travel as the most important part of it so it's not just driven by the occupiers
2: I cycle quite a lot in London. And one of the things that often I go to a meeting when my bike is here at work and I don't take the bike because I think, okay, I'm going to somewhere. I don't know where I'm going to be leaving the bike. We see the number of bike thefts in cities such as London. I don't want to leave it on the street. I don't want to come out and find my saddle's been stolen or something. So it prohibits you from doing the right thing. Lots of places have a bike locker and maybe some places outside put their bikes. But this sense of security and just making it really fail-safe to take a bicycle isn't often very well thought of, I don't think.
1: I think that's right, and that's actually one of the original briefs, is to say that we need to promote sustainable travel. So you've got to get people that are arriving to the building, whether or not it's the public. We've even spoken to the local school and their teachers want a secure place to park so they can come and park in the building. It's about using the space. The one thing we can't do is deliver buildings with lots of parking that's empty. So this is about using it, promoting it, and supporting the local community at the same time. So it it wins all down. I, like you, have travelled many times on my bike, walked into a security guard with a big, no, you're not coming in. That is the thing that we need to change, and therefore creating this open, really inviting environment, it means that we want cyclists to use the space, as well as runners and walkers and others.
2: No, I'm sure that this project has been long in the making, but some of the things you describe sound like reactions also to greater needs that we became aware of during the pandemic, mental health, this idea that you can step away from your desk and you can go for a 200 metre stroll in a safe contained space again. Were those things stitching afterwards or were you already thinking about mental health some time ago?
1: So the great thing I can say is all those ideas were part of the scheme before the pandemic. What the pandemic has done for us is massively promote why we made those decisions as well. So that's been really, really important. We work with a Danish architect. And if you go to Copenhagen, they are the happiest people in the world, so they say. But if you look at how they've worked, it's about outside space. It's about moving around. So using this architect, we're getting a lot of the ideas that are all through Scandinavia coming to actually promote them. So the walk and talk for me is a really important one. Take the pandemic. I used to go for a walk in meetings in Hyde Park. I used to do that quite a lot. And it was obvious that that was an important part. So I got exercise, I was chatting to someone. So why not have a walk and talk, get out of your seat, go down, walk the 200 metre trap a couple of times and make a telephone call and then go back. So you're doing fresh air, wellness, as well as actually doing your job. So that was I have no stats to prove this at the moment. I believe that that increased the productivity of those that are in the building
2: as an investor, as somebody thinking about bringing these projects to life as a real estate backer, are you thinking of these things also as you know competitive edge? They are competitive edge, and that isn't a bad thing to do. But when you look now, there are going to be some towers that don't get tenants, and people are concerned about you know whether their buildings are good for the environment, or what it's going to look like on, the, on their books in a few years' time. How important is it to to be blunt and think, yeah, these, these are things that will win us the right kinds of people who want to be in our buildings.
1: To be totally clear, if we believe, which we do believe in the climate crisis, you have to do a lot of things to buildings to make them the best. That's number one. Number two is it will make more money. We believe what we're doing will attract more people to us quicker We'll rent it quicker and also we will be the first in the row for someone to come and see. So we believe all of these are really important for the climate crisis and for people, but it will give us the better return. So it actually wins in both sides.
2: Now, while we've got you here, let's just move a little bit off 105 because over the last few days and last few months, we've been speaking to so many people in your industry and construction in, in real estate. And I'm really struck that it feels like lots of things are aligning all at the same time. The industry... Every industry is good at talking about what they do. But actually, there feels to be a real moment of change with the players, the people. We spoke to somebody who is the CEO of a huge construction company and was almost evangelical about the good they could do if they get this right and the, the materials they use and making sure that you know they use a type of concrete that has less water in it and that the glass is carbon neutral. Is this a moment of change for your industry?
1: Well... I think it's getting highlighted as a moment of change. I think a lot of us have been working on it for the last few years, but it's been very short term. I believe that everybody who is delivering real estate globally has to follow this path because there's only 10, 15, maybe 20% of buildings that will ever be redeveloped. We've still got a lot of those that won't be. So this is our moment to really make a difference. And we spend a lot of time... Looking at opportunities to reduce how much embodied carbon you spend, but more importantly, how do you reduce the operational carbon? So, if I was to use the projects I'm doing, our key has been to limit the amount of energy that's used once it's built.
2: 105
1: was a, a cleared site, a ground-up site. Yes.
2: So that you have some benefits there in making a sustainable building. But do you think those opportunities are going to become rarer and rarer because city authorities around the world are saying now, look, if there's an existing structure, you've got to find some way of repurposing, reusing. We're going to be less willing to allow total clearance.
1: I think those challenges, but actually of my portfolio of nine projects, four of them are reusing the building two of them using half the building and one is a rebuild. So to be sustainable, someone has to want it, someone wants to use it, and it has to be operationally energy efficient. So we have to get over that there are certain parts of demolition that we have to do to be able to achieve the goals in the future. If I just think about the project that we did demolish, we are rebuilding our building and within seven years, we are using the same amount of carbon as it would have been lost by leaving that building live. So you can imagine after 60 years if you continue keeping buildings that are inefficient and not working, that actually the flip side is you create a better energy opportunity if you demolish that particular building. And there'll be some cases where you look at that building and actually it's really good. You only need to make minor changes. And then the other one will be you'll need 50% of it to be changed. But every developer needs to look at this as an opportunity to make the best that they can do from an environmental perspective, whatever the asset, wherever the asset is, and whatever you need to do.
2: Fine, let's return to 105. When can we be going across the bicycle ramp? When can we be heading down to the basement?
1: So it's completed in the second quarter of 2026, but I am actually planning on doing a bike ride with a lot of people from the site that will end up in the ramp when it's first installed, which will be in probably about 18 months time. And so we're actually going to be doing testing runs over the next four years. So we're going to have a lot of fun. Alexander
0: Morris from Bental Green
1: Oak. Thank you for joining me today.
0: Dense urban environments can sometimes make it harder to get out and get active. But with a little innovation, even the most cramped of cities can provide for those in search of exercise space. Microgyms have been popping up all over the world recently, especially across Asia, allowing city dwellers to rent their own private gym pods found dotted around the parks and the public realm. We sent Monocle's Lillian Fawcett along to work out just what these micro gyms are getting right.
3: Now, having spent quite a bit of time just finding the place, like many things in Singapore, it's located in a shopping mall. I'm here and let's go inside. I have my app open with my booking and I'm going to press open door and let's see what happens. There we go, I'm in. And I just pushed instead of pulled. You don't have to spend long in Singapore to realize that space is at a premium. As cities go, Singapore is a pretty normal size. Five and a half million people living on an area of land around half the size of London or almost equivalent to New York City. But Singapore is a city state on an island. That means fitting a whole country and all the infrastructure and people that come with it into an area around half the size of London. All use of space must therefore be carefully considered. So-called micro-gyms are an example of how entrepreneurs are getting around skyrocketing rental prices that might usually make setting up a space-hungry business like a gym prohibitively expensive. Micro gyms are totally private, compact gyms, usable only by the person who has booked them in their allotted time. Each is about the size of a shipping container. Some actually are within shipping containers, dropped by roadsides or in parks. It's kind of a perfectly contained, tiny gym. There's quite a bit of equipment, and there are weight racks, there's a treadmill. And an exercise bike and some free weights. Let's use some of the equipment now. A local company, GymPod, now has dozens of micro gyms dotted across the city. Another, My Gym Lab, has also popped up. Booking the micro gym was a smooth process. Through an app, I paid nine Singapore dollars, that's about six euros, for a half hour slot at the gym nearest me. It certainly offers a flexibility that might appeal to Singapore's many corporate types. I've uh, hopped on the exercise bike, which might explain why I'm a little out of breath, but everything is very clean, very functional, again, very typical of Singapore where everything just sort of works. The cleanliness is more surprising given there are no staff monitoring the micro gym. That's another way these startups have been able to keep costs down. Both GymPod and MyGymLab offer interactive mirrors, customizable lighting, and speakers for your music. I was more excited by the air conditioning, having not yet got used to Singapore's relentless humidity. The weather can mean exercising outside is difficult in the day. Whatever it is that appeals to users, Jimpod seems to be doing something right. The Singapore startup is reportedly looking to expand its model into bigger markets, like the US and even China. Providing enough food and housing for all residents of this densely populated island is a continual challenge for the Singaporean government. Meanwhile, the private sector must make use of whatever space it can find, and is addressing some other Singapore-specific challenges at the same time. And now I've reached the end of my slot and I... I'm in a bit of a panic that someone else is just about to come in, so I should probably get going. For Monocle in Singapore, I'm Lillian Fawcett.
0: So what part can urban design play in getting more citizens moving? Yorick Bayer is the director and founder of Blossity, an urban strategy consultancy which has been working with cities on how to make the urban environment more conducive to a physically active lifestyle. Well, Yorick caught up with Monocle's David Stevens recently, and David began by asking Yorick what the term "active city" meant to him.
4: I think we we know now, and science is very clear, but that the the built environment has huge impact on our behaviour. So there's a very strong correlation between the way our our and that could be an office space or it could be an outdoor environment could be your home, that environment influences the way you feel. And it can also nudge people who have a more active lifestyle. So I'm I'm a designer by training, and we started Velocity 10 years ago, me together with a health scientist to really bridge the gap that was there and still is on the the more evidence-based approach on active design. And it is super urgent because we know that 80% of the kids worldwide are not meeting WHO norms on physical activity, sitting... Is the new smoking, I mean, it's often being said. And design is definitely not the only solution, but there's huge potential to be more considerate in how we shape spaces and through that shape behavior.
5: Tell us about how the pandemic put into focus some of the reasons behind why
4: active cities are so important. Yeah, I think the pandemic, I think, really exposed, I think, first of all, the needs and the benefits of moving. So it's very clear that the physical activity has very strong benefits on your mental health. And I think we've all faced that moment where you feel being locked up in the home, you're not able to go to a gym, and then all of a sudden, your, your walk in a park or your, your run in an outdoor environment has huge impact on the way you feel. So I think COVID really made it clear that sport and movement is super, it's fundamental to our health and happiness. Building on that, I think the pandemic also exposed inequalities when it comes to health behavior. It is very different. If you're in a lockdown situation in a flat uh, somewhere in East London, compared to being in lockdown in a big house with a garden around it, where where you or your kids still have the ability to go out and to play a soccer game. So I think COVID also learned us that there is huge inequality, especially in our city, and that that impacts health behavior. And then the consequences of that are enormous, because we know and from science that children, for example, that have less access to sports and to play. Also, have a slower personal development. They have less chance to land a job, and then you you get in sort of an vicious cycle of poverty. So, I think COVID really stressed how important active cities are and the potential to not only think of sports in formal settings like soccer fields or basketball courts, but also much more in informal ways of making cities more active through walking, through cycling, etc. And we're going to speak in a moment about what
5: is being done, but. Looking at the city right now, what does a city do to encourage or even discourage people to engage in physical activity?
4: I'm often being asked to give good case studies of active cities, and it's a bit disappointing. I think, in all fairness, we've designed cities for cars for centuries. And I think the modern city, if you look at urban planning and the idea of functional zoning, where you take your car and drive to the office, and you drive your car to the supermarkets, are all urban fabric in Europe and definitely also in in Northern America is all built around the car and it's not promoting physical activity. So it's hard because of sprawl and because of uh, lacking infrastructure. It's just difficult and unsafe for people to walk or to bicycle. So that is one of the first things that we have to tackle before we even start talking about sports facilities, for example.
5: So then how are designers and urban planners starting to take active cities into their own hands?
4: Well, Luckily, there's more and more attention for the intersection between behavior and the built environment. And I think it's good to mention, of course, that the solutions are, are very contextual, are very geographically specific. But just to mention a few, I think it's there's more and more awareness on the fact that middle density, short building blocks, so you have like a lot of crossings, and you have a good amount of people to allow also for local amenities, all promotes people to walk more. So again it's not just about the design of the sidewalk but also the urban form of the city really influences our behavior and makes it more attractive for people to walk somewhere instead of taking the car. I think on the sort of a second layer I think we're also coming back from that functional zoning that I just mentioned. I think the modernist city where everything was distributed in different neighborhoods in different parts of the city I think we're seeing more and more mixed-use developments, and I think that's a good thing from a behavior point of view, because, again, it helps people to live in smaller and more local communities, and they're, again, being nudged a little bit more to go out and do something. I mean, for example, a stronger combination of residential areas with office spaces, with commercial functions, all clustered together. That's definitely one of the design solutions from an urban planning point of view to address this topic.
5: And do you think, I feel like I know the answer, but is density fundamentally at odds with physical activities? Is there a battle between those two ideas? And can they ultimately coexist?
4: Density is fundamental, but then in a European context, because I think it's difficult to compare that to Southeast Asia, for example, but I think that what I call also the middle density, so then you're thinking of building blocks that are big to 10 floors high, but not the enormous towers, but also not the, the individual homes of just three floors that middle density, seven to 10, really allows for a good amount of people in an area to justify also commercial program, to justify public transport, for example, where if you push it forward, if you go then to skyscrapers and really high towers, then you see that the quality of the public space often is being really pressured. And also the sense of belonging that people have in these kind of areas, all of a sudden really changes. So with that middle density, you still have concept of social safety. You still have an idea of eyes on the street, whereas if you go into more of a tower structure, that's becoming more and more difficult. So I'm a huge ambassador for that middle density. I think that has a lot of benefits for cities.
5: And I feel like this works into an idea that's been coming up a lot over the past few years here on the show. The 15-minute city that's all about kind of making sure that active modes of transport can be used to access things in your cities. But do you think there's also part of that discussion that's about accessing sports facilities and places where you can engage in physical activity?
4: Yeah, for sure, yeah. I didn't want to mention before, but I'm a little bit skeptic about the 50-minute city concept at large, because from a geography point of view, and if you think of agglomeration benefits, it works on a lot of facilities and amenities on a neighborhood level. It's a really strong model. If you look then at the level of university or like big museum, like high-level cultural amenities, it's very difficult to distribute these evenly across 50 minute cities. That's just not how cities work from an agglomeration point of view. But if you make it a little bit more sort of daily life, then that model certainly ties in. And I think your point, access to sports. I think that is the fundamental thing. If we look at, in particular, children, but also adults that have less access to sport I and mean, they also they sport less I mean obviously I think that is a little bit the risk of the 15 minute city models that you don't want to segregate a segregated city where you have 50 minutes neighborhoods for the well-off people and 50 minutes neighborhoods for the people that have still no access to good quality public domain amenities. again that's where I think that the equity and the equality still has to work on a city level.
0: you're at there in conversation with Monocles David Stevens. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Remember to sign up to the podcast, get new episodes, direct to you every week. The Urbanist is produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Olivia Newton-John with Physical. Thank you for listening, city lovers.